Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, this is Chris, and I'm an instructional coach, and I'm working in a district that just started using a high-quality knowledge-building curriculum after we had used in the past guided reading and level text. And so my question is, how do we support our teachers and students in accessing that higher-level complex text and engage in productive struggle, but not to the point that they're frustrated and unable to complete any of the work? Thanks, Chris. This is such an incredibly important question. And Melissa, it's one that you and I have been talking about for a really long time. Yeah. we. I mean, we hear this question a lot. I think we've probably both experienced this in real life, right? Um, so I think, I think it's a very good question for us to dig into a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I know we're going to have a special guest on to talk a little bit more about this soon, but we thought we'd try just talking about this together to help Chris kind of process this and be thought partners with her. So absolutely. How does that sound? (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Um, So I I think there's different parts of this question, right? There's the question of why is it important to have students reading these more difficult texts, even knowing that they might not, you know, be at the fifth grade level, why is it still important for them to have access to these fifth grade level texts that are a little complex, right? Like, so there's the why it's important. And then there's the how, right? How do I, how do I help? How do I help there? Mm -hmm. Um, So I I think that's a really, really important question for both of those. So where do you want to start, Lori? I think we should start with the first question. Why Why? is it important? All right, Mm -hmm. let's start there. Yep. So Shanahan says that there's evidence that students need to stretch and have access to more difficult features of texts. But as teachers, it's our job to provide the scaffolds, right, to help them handle those hard texts. And they need to read the texts closely themselves, which that also could be a whole nother conversation. Um, But we need to think about the supports or scaffolds students will need to read the text on their own and make sense of it. Yeah. So I'll tell you a funny story that I, I don't know that I've ever told you, Lori. <laughs> so, oh, this is good. Go ahead. Uh, one time I was at a conference and um, we ran into Doug Fisher and this was like, this had to be 10 years ago. Um, so it wasn't recent. And um, okay. we, we like cornered him in, I don't I think it was like the elevator or something. <laughs> so he had to answer <laughs> our questions and we were like, what is like the biggest thing that you would tell people right now like what's your what's what's something that people you know don't know um and he said this he's like I think we need to move away from this idea of leveled books for kids right keeping them in lower texts if they're reading at a lower level and we Mm -hmm. need to give them this like push right we need to push them out of that like not keeping them where they are but giving them access to these harder texts so that they can really grow. Um, That is in no way quoted because it was 10 years ago. (laughs) Yeah, it's okay. I was was actually imagining, I was imagining you turning to him in the elevator and hitting the 
the do not open button, you know, on the elevator and then just like turning and being like, tell me everything that, <laughs> yes, tell me, that you know, <laughs> but I, I, you know, at the time that was, you know, now I don't think it's as big of a like shock to hear that, but at the time it was right. Like that's what all we were doing was these guided reading level texts. That's meet kids where they are kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, so, and there's just not evidence that they help students that they help students grow or that they help students access grade level text any better. Right. Right. And so, and and I've always thought too, like, you know, once you sit with that a little bit, that idea, you think about it, like, yeah, like, well, if like, what's my job as a teacher, if I'm only giving them text, they can already read at that level, right? Like <laughs> how, how do I help them grow and become a better reader? If, if I'm keeping them in the same level that they're, already in right maybe they grow a little bit but how do I really push them right and I think it's thinking about the balance too so the degree of reading difficulty for a student and how the teacher is instructionally supporting and that's that's important to do especially when you're in a a, a, I mean I imagine it as I imagine wit and wisdom right because that's what my visual happens all the time is I imagine the students pulling out a rich grade level text and the student, the teacher providing the support so that students can access it. Um, but not ever taking away the complexity of the text. Mm-hmm. And there are different scaffolds within that, right? So I'll name one, um, in wit and wisdom, there's explicit fluency practice for small portions, very important portions of the text that students, you know, can use for, evidence to responses down the road or that they might need to really understand deeply in order to understand another part of the text coming up. And so they read those small portions of text fluently and they practice reading them fluently and they it's, it's fluency practice with that part of the difficult text. And that repetition enables fluent reading and enables better understanding. So that's just one way that, you know, one scaffold, if you will, that, that helps students, um, dig into complex text. Yeah. I think you bring up a really good point, which is actually my brain's going in like 10 different directions, but I'll try and keep it in one. Yeah, go ahead. I think like, you know, like thinking about the difference, you know, if, if students are still working on decoding and fluency, right, you have to give them the right practice for that, right? Like, so you gave a really great example of within and wisdom, but even older students might need some like extra work on decoding or fluency in like some kind of intervention potentially, right? That might be a thing students still need as you're helping them access these complex texts. But even at the K2 level, even throughout, that does not mean that they shouldn't have access to these complex texts in some way, right? Even at the K2 level, if it's during, you know, if it's teachers reading aloud, Mm-hmm. They're still getting access to these texts, which give them, you know, time to hear that rich vocabulary, build that knowledge ongoing, right? And and that's what we don't want to miss out on by keeping kids in the level texts. That's right. I also imagine my, you know, students are not growing as they're, I'm imagining like a third grader who's never been exposed to third grade text. Right. How, how will you grow? I mean, I think about it with anything, right? So my daughter plays soccer and, you know, we, I would, I wouldn't want her to be just in a soccer skill group. That's only working on skills that she can 
do easily. There's, right. And she's never going to learn any new skills <laughs> or grow. You know, I mean, if, if you're never teaching any new skills or exposing her to any new skills, then she's honestly, I mean, and I, I try not to use words like always or never, but she'll never have the opportunity to learn them if she's never exposed to them. And that's what I feel like we do with leveled reading is that we, we just practice the things that we quote, you know, already know, and there's not a clear path for how to move forward. And and I will say that as having someone who has experience with that. Um, it's very wishy-washy with how you get to the quote next level. And, uh, you know, if we need to be exposing to grade level text and, and I would even use the word immersing because I don't think that exposing is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. exposing gives the, um, I think facade, like, Oh, we're going to expose them to grade level text, but that could be two minutes a day, five minutes a day. Right, like right. I do think yeah, it should be a immersion in grade level text <laughs> where students are accessing the grade level text. And, and then the, the other things that you mentioned, right. The skill practice or the fluency practice are happening, but they're happening not as the majority of the time. Yeah. The complex text is the majority of the time. Yes. And so I think that brings us then to the question of the real challenge of a teacher that Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone would argue with is like you, you know, then you have this tough text and you just told me all the reasons why it should happen (laughs) in my classroom. But I do have a classroom full of students who range from reading on grade level to one grade level below to three grade levels below to four grade levels below to depending on what grade level you're at. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I taught high school, Melissa, I t- you know, when I taught high school, that was a lot of grade levels quote below, you know? Right. And what, what that, that's a real realistic challenge, right? And I don't think any of us are saying, oh, this is really easy, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're saying all the reasons why it's important to keep these complex texts at the center of your classroom, but how do you really help students get there? So give us the answers, Lori. Oh my gosh. Uh, (laughs) I definitely don't have all of the answers. Um, but what I will say, (laughs) I don't expect you to have all the answers. I know what I will say is that uh, the, I, I think for me, the very first thing in, and the thing that I see when, um, you know, I, I'm reading the Facebook posts or I'm working with, with teachers or, um, or students is the opportunity is the most important thing is giving students the opportunity. If, and I do believe that because I've seen it time and time and time again, and heard from teachers and students time again, that when students have the opportunity to access grade level text, that they will rise to the challenge. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a, a post right now, um, a teacher said it can seem hard and that the kids don't understand, but they'll shock you and understand even more than you thought they would. So, you know, and not that it's easy. And the teacher went on to say that it, it's not easy, but trust that your kids can do it. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, I feel like that is such a, a wishy-washy answer. Like that is, not <laughs> you just asked me a really important question, but I think that that is the very first thing that's super important. And it also goes back to the TNTP study that when teachers have high expectations, like that matters. Um, and you know, we can link all this stuff so that uh, listeners out there are like, okay, I want to, I want to know all these resources that you're, yeah. you're quoting. Um, <laughs> so you're not just talking off the cuff, but what are you thinking, Melissa? <laughs> well, I think that's a really good point. I think that's a really good starting place, right? Like, cause if, if a teacher's mm-hmm. going in thinking there's no way my kids can read this, 
then the team, the students are going to feel the same way, right? And they're not going to feel that confidence to be able to tackle it. So I think that's number one. Um, and then I think, I'll go back to what we already said once, but I'll say it again, that like if students are still struggling with any like real decoding, like gaps in that foundational learning, um, it's important that they are getting that right intervention for that. I think that's, we have to say that, right? That's not necessarily something that, a teacher might be required to do during this time, but like we should, mm -hmm. we should have the right intervention for students, but there are things that teachers can do, right. That, um, I always get nervous when I hear I'm not, I'm not shooting down audiobooks a hundred percent, but I think if that's the only thing we're doing is, you know, either just, you know, pushing through and reading aloud every book to a kid or, audiobooks so we can just get through so they can answer questions. Um, mm -hmm. I think there's other scaffolds in there that we can give opportunities for students to also practice reading that text on their own. I think that's really important. So I'm looking yep. right now at the, um, we, we gave this handout out of during a few episodes ago with Unbound Ed that was mm -hmm. scaffolding complex texts. And I think yeah, I was going to ask you, Melissa, what are some of the scaffolds? Because I think like being really specific here is, is yep. important. That's where I was going, Lori. But they, good, they, they give a lot of really helpful and specific <laughs> things that give opportunities for students to actually read the text on their own. You know, mm -hmm. so And Melissa, we do have this tool that we're talking about in case anybody's listening and they're like sitting in front of a computer. We have it linked on our website. <laughs> Under our, I think it's our favorite things or our resources. I never remember because it, to me, those things are very synonymous. So. We recommend it's called. We recommend. <laughs> so it's both. We recommend all of our favorite things. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a scaffolding complex text uh, tool from Unbound Ed. Yeah. So there's like things that you can do beforehand, um, which, you know, you can do some things like pre-teaching some of the vocabulary so they're more familiar with it. Um, giving them a purpose for reading so they know why they're reading it. Um, I also just think like, I, I'm thinking to some of the work that some Baltimore city teachers are doing with fluency and they, mm -hmm. they did some of that fluency work that you're talking about, Lori, mm -hmm. before reading. So Ooh. when the students got to that part of the text, they were like, I know this, like, I feel so confident about it. Right. And so that, mm -hmm. that could even be part of it too. That's not on this, but I'm just thinking <laughs> my yep. own as well. Yeah. What stands out to me, not only about the things that you're mentioning, but as I'm looking at this, um, this document, these, the things that are be re being recommended for scaffolding are not things that take a lot of time, right? Allow students to, um, yeah, or, or, I'm sorry, we'll go with this one, pre-teach vocabulary that are key to, but not defined within the text. Okay. That doesn't take a lot of time to do a quick pre-teach of vocabulary. I mean, it shouldn't take a lot of time and get right into the text. Um, you know, review if it's a, a text that needs some uh, structural help or students might need structural help to access the text, review some pertinent single signal words, mm -hmm. um, you know, conduct multiple readings, each with a different purpose. Well, if you're, you're reading a rich text, that's going to happen anyway. <laughs> and it should, right. And, and that, yeah. that's okay. And, and I think a lot of the ones I see, especially for after reading around the, the text dependent questions that you ask, right. And how do you help students like first just build a 
basic understanding of what happened in the text, right? Just, I think I remember, I think it was James Murphy who talked about this on our, like, just ask them first, like, initial questions of, like, what's going on? Do you get it? Uh And, like, asking them questions to make sure that they know what's going on and have them go back to the text if they don't so they can figure it out, right? And then you can ask them, like, questions that get them to that deeper level, but not jumping straight to that deeper level, but making sure they first have that basic understanding of what's going on. Mm -hmm. I like to think about it, Melissa, when when I, I try to like talk with Presley about either something that happened or some, I mean, the, when I talk with her, the, the basics have to, ha- I have to know that she understands what happened first before yeah. I dig into like any deeper meaning of it, you know? And it just, it seems very rational in everyday life and conversation. But then when we get into a text, we're like, okay, now we have to go to the highest level of Bloom's taxonomy possible. And it's like, ooh, skill back yeah. a bit. Cause when we read, we, we first just have to understand what's happening, you know? Yeah. And <laughs> what I am I like, noticing what's happening? <laughs> I think back to like, when I was in the classroom, I think some of that comes from like, you know, you expect have people looking at your lesson plans or they're coming in to see your classroom and they always and they're checking off the number of questions yeah Mm -hmm. you know and it's like I think there needs to be space where you say like hey no today we were getting a basic understanding of this text so that tomorrow we can (laughs) get get to that deeper level but like we can't just jump right to it (laughs) exactly that's so important Oh, so, okay. So we have the, the resource um, that we just talked about, the scaffolding complex text or scaffolding text complexity. We're also going to link a few other resources. So one from Student Achievement Partners, supporting mm-hmm. all learners with complex text, as well as um, Wit and Wisdom Support for Educators. I think that that's a great one too. Um, but it, we're going to have some resources in the show notes to help you think through some of these things and, and some research that you can read at your leisure to, you know, increase your depth of knowledge of this if you're interested. But we're super grateful that Chris asked this really important question so that we could begin to open up the conversation. And then I think we're going to get into a little bit further with a special guest coming up, right, Melissa? Yeah, I think we're going to give, we're going to, we're going to let people listen to one we've already had. I guess we've already had on. <laughs> we well, I guess we've this. already had on. Oh, okay. There you go. Well, I know we're going to talk about it in the future as well. <laughs> of course we will. Yeah, because yeah. I, you know, as we hear questions from our, our listeners, we find guests that help us answer those questions. So we'll continue totally. to answer this question along the way. Because it's, it's, I mean, it is hard. And a lot of these, these recommendations are great, but they're, you know, each individual student is a little bit different and you got to figure out what works for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. This is just the t- tip of the iceberg as an answer to this question. <laughs> yeah. So that was just the tip of the iceberg today, but in the podcast that we are connecting to this, so we have David Lieben. It's a re-release, <laughs> but honestly, I can never get enough of David Lieben. So <laughs> me neither. And it's been a while since since we've talked to him. And I think he really does a nice job, especially talking about those like why these complex texts are just so important. He'll do a better job of talking through that than we did for sure. <laughs> yeah. He'll he'll be able to extend our conversation, Melissa. Yeah. Go a little bit All deeper. Right. I'll, give, I'll give us some. <laughs> credit. <laughs> no, it, it really, we're, we're grateful that we have this content to connect to. So Chris, please, you know, encourage your teachers to listen to the, um, the podcast that we're, we're putting on now with David Lieben and, you know, please continue to reach out as you have questions. We're, we're very happy that we can help the education community in this way. Yep. And if you do have a question, feel free to email us at Melissa and Lori at literacypodcast.com.
Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are super pumped up today because we have the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. David Levin here with us. Um, he has synthesized research behind the Common Core Standards. He's worked with Student Achievement Partners, and we are thrilled to talk to him today. Melissa, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> Super excited. So um, David gave a speech for all of our teachers teaching Wit and Wisdom at, at the beginning of this school year, and it was just super inspiring. Um, not to mention he has a book, No Better, Do Better, that came out this year that a ton of people have um, read and we've talked about and we've talked about on this podcast, and so we're, we're definitely really excited to talk to him today. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love the book. Um, if you haven't purchased it yet, oh, please go on and purchase it. Uh, it's on Amazon and really anywhere, but, um, we also like to plug Amazon two day shipping. You got the book in your hands. No better, do better by the leave in. So, all right, without further ado, David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> is, this, is this your first podcast appearance? I, I am really old and have been involved in a long time. So my first podcast was at a library, um, and it was the first time that I spoke in, in 2010, right after the standards were, were um, basically in place. And it was quite an experience speaking into a computer with no audience for the first time ever. So... <laughs> No, I've done a bunch of podcasts and um, probably more webinars. Got it. Well, I bet that you haven't podcasted with anyone um, like us, so we are happy that you're here today. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually actually true. <laughs> you you did like the OG version of a podcast. <laughs> Um, so we are so excited to talk to you, um, especially about some of those key points that still stick with us um, about that speech that you did in Baltimore. And really, that's what prompted us to reach out to you because um, you made such an impact. And it was funny for our listeners out there when I was like, David, you, you made such an impact. We want a podcast with you. He was like, I don't remember what I said. <laughs> what did I say? We do. We remember. We do. Um, so, David, um, we want to uh, attack this idea of, um, or address this idea of how and why do old habits die hard? Um, like, for example, in terms of isolated skill instruction versus knowledge building. So, why do you think that this is such a big shift um, in education happening right now? And what is going on in terms of this movement from isolated skills to knowledge building? And, and why, are, why is there resistance? All right. Well, you're certainly start, you're starting off with a rather important, large question. <laughs> go big or go yeah. home, right? <laughs> I call I call this. Question, the, I, I have actually have a name for this question. It's called the um, "If you bring your car to a blacksmith, they'll put horseshoes on it." Question. Uh, <laughs> it's it's completely understandable why people are going to do what, what they used to, why teachers are going to do what they used to. Teaching is not like, like, you know, we're recording something here. So if I screw up big time, you guys will just erase it and start again, or you'll, or you'll cut it out or something. Um, teaching, like Broadway shows, is live. And mm -hmm. it's a live audience, very live in most cases. 
And if you if you're not comfortable doing something, that's really that's really difficult. It's very easy to fall back on what you're used to. And the kind of teaching, whether it's systematic phonics or um, the knowledge-based curriculum curriculums that have come out since the standards, virtually, virtually no teachers. Uh, that is almost still true. That teachers go through through their um, undergraduate and or graduate training, and they don't learn about literacy through the medium of these types of curriculums. And then that would be changing a little bit. Um, Relay is a graduate school of education in different parts of the country that was started um, out of one of the not-for-profits, and they are close to it, but even they don't don't use these curriculum as, as a as a means of as a means of teaching. So teachers haven't learned this type of teaching. Number one, and number two, um, when you're in that situation in front of a live audience, it's 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 uh, it produces stress. And I think the other reason, or another reason, is that people don't see since they don't have the background in this, we don't see why it's why it's more why it's more powerful. And the best way to show that actually is you know is through an example. I mean, I worked with I worked with a number. I worked really with all of these curriculums that have come out except one, and. If you take a look at them, and I'm going to actually do, I'm going to look through one. I'm going to look through grade three, module three in wit, in wit and wisdom. Okay. And it, uh, this is a module on immigration. And really, um, the topic in this case, sort of in any nonfiction topic. And there's, there's a section they're reading a text, and the text is an introduction. And it says, in this particular part, students collaboratively annotate the paragraph for the features of an effective introduction to an explanatory essay as follows. And the next section says, students circle the part of the introduction that catches the reader's attention and use the blank column to explain how the introduction catches the reader's attention. Now, think for a minute. How is that different than traditional guided reading, whether it's through a... Um, program like Teachers College Units of Study or as it's done in, in a basal. In that mm. situation, students will come up in a group and they might, the teacher might ask them to read an introduction to a nonfiction piece of text and think about why, why it's effective. And so she'll give them a minute to think about it and then they'll talk about it. This is a little different though. Mm-hmm. And here they're asking the students to all write their answers, and then they go over it. Writing really forces you to clarify your thinking. In a traditional guided mm-hmm. reading, not likely that you would have time to do all that because in guided reading, you've got to shuffle through three, four, or sometimes even five groups. You only have 10 or maybe 15 minutes in your group with your level, with your level text. Here, since it's whole class, there's more time, and you can do that right. That's, so that's two big differences. There's, there's time and there's the idea of writing. Where again, in a traditional guided reading situation, the teacher might pose the question. If it's a stronger teacher, she might have, the, the students might be aware that any of them can be asked, can called on to answer that question. But very often that's not the case either. 
and kids volunteer, and the teacher picks to volunteer, often the stronger of the students in the group. And kids often know, well, I don't, I'm not going to worry about this. I don't really get this. But Jose's sharp. I know he'll raise his hand and answer the question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that, that, then it goes on. Students then underline the topic of the essay and use the blank column to explain how we know what the topic of the essay is. And they're looking for things like there's many reasons why people left home. This is about immigration um, or because it's all the sentences. Talk about people leaving home. And again, the students have to write. And again, the students have to, um, after they write, then they're called on to, called on to answer. But they've written it, and it's forced them to get their, their thoughts their thoughts out. Then students write a one in the blank column next to the first important point that they picked, a two next to the second, and a three next to the third. Well, again, here you're not writing it, but you're using what you, you, what you learned in the first two parts of the lesson, where you mm-hmm. out what the topic was and where you wrote the important points. You don't usually have that in traditional guided reading, whether it's in, uh, as I said, a, a, something like units of study or a basal. In that case, you're usually jumping from one kind of reading strategy. Let's do a prediction now, and then let's do an inference now, and then let's do vocabulary. You don't stay on something long enough to really get a sense of it as you are here because you have mm-hmm. more time. And in addition, you're reaching, you're reaching here a number, but by doing this, you're dealing with the, with the structure strategy, strategy five, in this case for informational text. You're dealing with the main idea or a theme strat, uh, structure standard, um, and standard two, the main idea or theme standard. So you're interacting with both of these standards in this lesson while also learning what makes an introduction a good introduction, while also doing some writing to clarify your thoughts. And then it says, students store the paper and writing folders to reference throughout the module. You never do that in any kind of traditional guided reading or basal guided reading setting. Mm-hmm. And that's what academic learning is. Academic learning, when you move into middle school or high school and in college, is where you learn something, you keep a, ref- a record of that learning, and you use it to learn more later on. So, And then you go to the next part here. What makes this paragraph an effective introduction to the explanatory essay? And then they're looking for the kids to talk about it. Gets your attention. It tells you what the topic it is. It identifies the main points. And additionally, it, essentially, it synthesizes what just happened. So you're synthesizing yeah. all the learning in a lesson. You're meeting a number of standards. You're keeping the information that you have so that you use later. Traditional guided reading does nothing like that. And I think... Well, actually, and that, that I haven't even gotten to the most important part. Oh, well, tell us the most important part is that to become a proficient reader, you have to have sufficient vocabulary and you have to have sufficient knowledge of the world. And the lesson that I just described is part of a unit on immigration. And as studying immigration for a period of five to eight weeks or whatever it is, you're growing your knowledge of the world. I'm going to stop there before I go more into, a little bit more into knowledge and vocabulary and see if you have any questions or any follow-up on the basis of, on the basis of that. But my point is that if teachers don't see how this approach meets the standards and don't see the power of this approach, then it's hard for them to make the switch 
to something that they've been doing most of their teaching career or all of their teaching career and they're more comfortable with. And yeah, the last part of that is um, administrators need to give, give teachers room to learn that and, and as much as possible a, a totally comfort, risk-free environment. So that, that's, a, that's not a mouthful. That's three mouthfuls. So I'll stop. <laughs> Yeah, David, I was going to say, I, something I've heard and that you sparked in me that to remember is I've heard a lot of teachers saying, especially in the lower grades, there's just too much whole group instruction. And when you talked through that, what I heard you talking about were like, what were the benefits of the whole group time, which I don't know that um, they've fully, you know, been able to see what the benefits are because they, what they know are the benefits of what they've done before, not necessarily the benefits of what um, is new to them. Exactly, exactly. And of course, there's, there's no research in terms of literacy, um, in terms of improving students' reading proficiency, small group versus whole group. There's, in terms of this kind of work, there is research in terms of foundational skills, but that's not particular. particular that's not what we're talking about here. But that's a good point. Um, if yeah. you don't see the benefit of, of it, then why make a switch to whole to whole class? Yeah, and and one of the things that um, in terms of not just seeing the benefit of like. Or, Keeping in mind the benefit of something new when you only have experience with something that's not what you're currently doing is um, an, an additional benefit that I you, you mentioned, David, but you didn't explicitly say, so I want to call it out, is that we talked about that synthesizing in the lesson, but it's really also the synthesizing within the lesson and among lessons and then among the whole year of lessons and then among the whole trajectory of you as a student in this school system. So like from K through eight, your experience with the knowledge and, and learning as it, as it grows. So building on that um, throughout the course of like your educational career. And I think that that is something that is, you know, another shift that we're making, you know, and not just being like the student's experience in fourth grade or in my classroom, but really thinking about how that educational experience looks for the student over the course of his or her elementary and middle school and high school trajectory and what knowledge and skills we're giving uh, that that child really and then that young adult to, as you said, prepare in the way that they need to. Like I, I always think of it like that portfolio of knowledge, like they're taking all of the knowledge and skills with them to be prepared. And you had mentioned that, but you didn't use the, the portfolio uh, metaphor um, or visual. So um, I, that just made me think about that and how, what it looks like over the course of the years. Is there any um, thing that you've seen as you've been in schools that has um, reinforced that idea? Yeah, and uh, in, in the first thing that comes to mind is in a written wisdom school, they were they were they were starting. I, I believe they were starting a new module, and they were starting it with at some point. I don't know if it was the first activity, but with um, no notice and wonder, and the teacher had. Um, taking book covers from some of the previous books that the students had read, and she put them in groups. And all these curriculum have plenty of time in groups. She put them in groups, 
and had them reflect back using their, using their journals or using their other material or just remembering what were some of the noticings and wondering they had with those other texts. And then they had the pictures of the other texts in the front of the room because, as I said, she cut out the book covers. So that's, that's setting a whole different mindset of learning. Rather than having a mindset of this week we're doing inferencing and, and next week we're doing theme and the week after that we're doing text structure and the week after that we're doing prediction. It, it's a mindset about knowledge and synthesizing learning and using what you have learned to help you learn, to help you learn more. In, in addition to that being an entirely different month, mindset, it's way more interesting. It's very few students are, are, are excited and go home to tell their parents about how they learned about making an inference today. Um, but what they learned about sharks or whales or immigrants or squids, et cetera, um, or Japanese paintings, that's a, that's, that's a whole different story. That's what they've been doing in elite private schools for generations. Um, and, and I would say that's feedback we're actually hearing from parents here in Baltimore is that they actually are able to talk to their kids and their kids come home excited about what they're learning. Exactly. And, and so, many, so many of these things, so many of these parts of these lessons connect to other parts. And, but if teachers don't see it, they don't, they don't see the, uh, how the standards are there. And they don't see the, the power of this kind of learning, which, which, unfortunately, you don't get. You don't see it in like two days. You have to do it over a period over a period of time. And related to that, this happened with this happened when I was doing some PD in Baltimore. But the same exact thing happened. Um, I, I think it might have been Denver, but with with EL another curriculum. In that mm -hmm. principal would say the teachers don't know the standards. And so mm -hmm. I said, okay, let's, let's take a look at the lesson and let's take a look at the questions. And we'd go look at a question and then, we, then I put up the standard and I said, okay, so this is the interaction standard, let's say, standard three um, in literary text. The connection between the different components of literature, plot, theme, setting, etc. Do these three questions get at that? And universally, they would say, yeah, it's lined up with, with the standard. Well, that's not back because a lot of effort went into writing these curriculums to make sure that the tasks and the assessments and the questions reflected the standards. So you don't have to worry about the standards per se, and you don't have to worry about teachers' knowledge of the standards because they're built into the curriculum. That's why people chose the curriculum, because it's aligned with the standards. It also happens to be aligned with the research about how the human mind begins to read and grows as a reader. But most of the time, the problem that the, the, the sense that people have is it's not aligned with the standards. We have to dig down. We have to really dig down on the standards. And that's, that's, that's a total mistake, A, because it's invalid, because it's embedded in the curriculum, and B, because then you go off track. And instead of spending as much time as humanly possible on doing and learning the curriculum, you go off track to explore some standards. Or, or you, at worst, you, you bring out some worksheets on this standard or this comprehension strategy, which completely leaves you astray. 
Can I ask you, David, too, um, something I've heard similar to that but slightly different is um, using assessments to go to the standards. So they'll assess their students and they'll say, you know, oh, this many students didn't do well on this standard. So then they end up doing something similar like worksheets for those standards or one lesson for those standards. What are your thoughts on how to, how to use assessments effectively with this kind of curriculum? Well, a standard, like a skill, and remind me to talk more about knowledge and vocabulary, okay? Okay, we won't forget. <laughs> kill. Do not work that way with literature. If you have a skill, and people treat the standards very often as skills, uh, like skill playing a piano is a skill. You can, if you can play the piano, you can play the piano on a pretty cheap, shoddy piano, and you can, uh, you can play it on, on a cheap, shoddy piano, and you can play it on, um, on a Steinway that costs tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. If you know how to dribble a basketball, you can dribble a basketball in the hallway, or you can dribble a basketball in the gym, <laughs> or you can dribble a basketball in Madison Square Garden. That doesn't work with standards and skills because... If you have a, you can have a complete understanding of the structure standard. You understand the different structures of informational text, compare and contrast, chronological goal, problem, solution, goal, action, outcome, etc. But then you come to the text, and there are references to events or ideas or concepts or people that you never heard of, and there's tier two vocabulary words that you can't understand. You cannot exercise that skill or that standard with that text. So the idea of teaching us to a standard just doesn't work because text presents obstacles that an understanding of a standard does not allow you, does not give you a tool to overcome those obstacles. And that's a very common misconception and it causes, it causes a lot a lot of confusion throughout. I think I might just record that little snippet and play it for people over and over. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is so timely too because it's test prep season. So I'm happy that we're having this conversation. <laughs> I have a 20 or 30 page piece that I wrote for the college board about this. And I don't know when, um, when it's public but if you ping me in a, a week or two, and if it's public and I, and I can send it to you, I'd be glad to do that. And you could put it wherever you can put it to make it helpful. That'd and be great. it's also like it. on text at the center is a piece written by my wife, Meredith, and Sue Pimentel, mm -hmm. uh, the, primary, the primary writer, one of the primary writers of the ELA standards. It's called Text at the Center. And it's on Achieve the Core, the Student Achievement Partners website. And it's about nine or ten pages directly addressed to just this particular question. And there's an insert that explains how, um, how it relates to test taking and how, it, how traditional test prep and test, test prep leads you astray and it's basically a big waste of time. And I, I wrote that. I wrote that insert into the, into the article that was written by Meredith and Sue. That's very helpful for people um, who want to get their heads around this question of both test prep and teaching standards in isolation. That's immensely helpful. David, we will link that in our show notes. Um, we will find that and link that. Thank you.
So why, like, this is such a hot topic and especially for this time of year, but, um, what, like, why do you think the pervasive test prep or the pervasive need to find standards within a curriculum that is a standard, high quality standards aligned curriculum continues? Like, what is the why behind that? Well, teacher accountability for one, um, it scares people and it, and if they believe that somehow, you know, it's almost like the analogy I use is in football is it, it, we really have to cross the goal line. So we're going to just teach them how to get across the goal line from the two yard line because it's a lot easier than, than starting in the 20 yard line or starting wherever you haven't started after the kickoff. Um, but it doesn't work because in real, in real life, you don't always start on a two yard line. And I think what happens is there's this hope that if I, if I just give them tests and go over those tests, it would bump up their scores. And that, that hope mm-hmm. is enhanced by, by pressure for, with teacher accountability and pressure to, to do well. That's number one. Number, yeah. number two, we've been doing test prep in our, in, in our educational system for decades now. And it hasn't raised the bar on scores for the children we need to help the most. So how often are we going to keep on doing it? Um, and number three, it has the same problem that, that we talked about with teaching to a standard rather than teaching text and text in the center. So I think for all these reasons, it's, it's very hard to, um, to move people away from, from test prep. It's also boring as shit. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and it, it really is. It really is. <laughs> I don't know if that's allowed on the podcast. Is that going to get cut? <laughs> no, off. it is. We, um, yeah, you can, you can curse away. We'll just click a button that says explicit language and we'll let all the um, moms and dads know who are teachers or educators listening. Don't listen in the car with your babies. It's all good. <laughs> No, it is, it is boring. It's boring as heck. Um, you know, I, I have a little one myself and I often talk about it. Um, she does not have a high quality curriculum in her school and it, it pains me to see what she brings home every day in terms of, um, both like physical, but also like what she tries to um, engage me with play, like let's play, let's find the text features and she'll make an organizer. And, um, it's just very inauthentic. Um, but then in terms of like test prep, you know, I, I can see it happening and she comes home really upset and she's a kid who can mostly behave herself in school. And she is very upset when they have to do test prep and it's not, and seeing it as an ed, doing it as an educator, um, and then like seeing it in your own child is just just a completely different experience and it it makes you feel shameful that you did that. Like I, I did that when I was a teacher that we did test prep because we thought it was the thing to do. And like, like you said, David, no better, do better. And, you know, we know that it, that's not the thing to do right now, but it's still painful that some kids, including my own still have to do that, you know? Um, so it's like, I would love for you, David, if you could speak to leaders who are listening right now, like what would be your advice? What would you share with them about test prep? Cause it is like a big conversation. Well, most of, most of what I would say to leaders, I I've said, but for leaders, for leaders, I, I, I guess I implore them to how many years have you been doing it? And has it bumped up your scores? Um, 
that that's that's the first thing. And then the second thing is what I've already said that it, it doesn't it doesn't work because you're usually focusing on a standard or a strategy, and the mastery of the standard or a strategy doesn't necessarily transfer to other texts. And the primary reason it doesn't transfer to other texts is because other texts present demands, especially grade-level texts, which is all we're dealing with on tests, present demands of background knowledge and vocabulary. And, if you, and you don't grow that by, um, by, by test prep. And that brings me to the, to the issue of knowledge and vocabulary. I went yeah, through... Yeah, I knew we would get back to it. <laughs> a series of steps on the lesson on, on wit and wisdom. And you saw how it, it, it connected the standards. It One part led to the next. Students had to write their answers, which helped them think about it. And then you reviewed it. And, and then you, you put it away to use for later information, for, la for later work. So you had all those very positive educational pieces to it, and that was not the most important. The most important was it was part of a six- to eight-week unit on immigration. Now, how that kind of approach to, to, to education grows knowledge is, is fairly clear. Um, when you jump around from topic to topic, as often happens in a, in a traditional guided reading or balanced literacy approach, one week you're doing um, insects, or one day you're doing insects, and the next day you're doing the elections, and your next day you're doing tree frogs. There's a couple of problems with that. One, the, the learning never gets a chance to sink in in the way that it does when you're staying on a topic. Two, that advantages children who have wider background knowledge. They know a little bit about trees, frogs, or a little bit about insects, or a little bit about elections. But students who have less wide background knowledge, jumping around like that, disadvantages them relative, usually, to their more high SES peers who have a wider background knowledge. So that's number two. Number three is even more powerful. A study, which you should definitely post, by Cervetti, Wang, and Wright, done I think about four or five years ago, was a really elegant piece of research. They took five or six texts and, and they had two group, two sets of texts. And one set was all about birds. So there were six texts, they were all about birds, and they were conceptually coherent. So the first one might have been an introduction to birds, the second one might have been about bird feathers, the third one, bird reproduction, the fourth one, nests, and so forth. And then the other set was about five different topics, and one of which was about birds, and the other one, the other one might have been about barns or cars, et cetera, but they jumped around, like as often happens in guided reading or basils, et cetera. But what they did was they implanted in each set 10 tier two words, you know, what the standards what we called academic vocabulary with the standards in, in order to confuse as many people in the country as possible, which was a tremendous success. Um, so tier two vocabulary, and they put the same 10 words, they in, embedded them in each set of texts. And then they had the kids read the text, do some traditional teaching with the text, with read the text, answer a series of questions, et cetera, and then they assessed the knowledge of these 10 words. So again, you had one group of kids was reading five, set, five texts all on birds. Another group was reading five texts that jumped around from topic to topic, but each group of texts had the same 10 tier two words. And they assessed on how many will learn. And sure enough, the kids who read the five conceptually coherent texts on the same topic learned more 
of the tier two vocabulary, not, not vocabulary connected to birds, tier two vocabulary like significant, important, various, et cetera. They learn more tier two vocabulary by staying on the topic over the period of a week or two that they read those texts. Now, vocabulary is absolutely fundamental to comprehending grade level text. If you have this effect in a week or so of learning, just by reading five texts, the magnitude of that effect increases exponentially when you're spending six to eight weeks on the same topic. You're looking at art on that topic. You're doing writing on that topic. You're reading prose on that topic. You're reading poetry on that topic. You're having discussions on that topic. The effect on vocabulary growth is compared to traditional instruction is enormous. So all those comparisons I made when I did that little brief, brief look at a, at a written wisdom lesson compared to a guided reading, none of that is as important as the fact that it's part of a module that grows vocabulary and knowledge. And when students take a test with grade level material, especially since half of it, since the standards has to be informational text, Unless they have a certain quantity of background knowledge and vocabulary, it doesn't matter what standards they've mastered. It doesn't matter what comprehension strategies they've learned. They will not be able to do well with that assessment unless they've grown vocabulary and grown knowledge. And that is what this curriculum and the other high-quality materials are designed to do five days a week four weeks a month, 10 months a year. That's even more important than the differences that I outlined before. And you guys should post the Cervetti, uh, the Cervetti Wang and Wright paper, which um, I'll be glad to send to you. Yeah, I'm, so I'm trying to pull it up. Is it called Conceptual Coherence, Comprehension, and Vocabulary Acquisition, a Knowledge Effect? Yep, yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely link that. That's great. Um, I know that you, you wrote something as well, David. Um, um, I think on uh, 2018 with Student Achievement Partners, uh, Vocabulary in the Common Core. Yeah, I would have thought I wrote it before that, but what do I know? I'm old. I forget a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it was before, but that's, that's what's showing. Um. Yeah, I did. I did write that. Um, I also wrote with David Pearson a paper called Progression of Comprehension that is also related to what we're talking about. But perhaps the, the most closely related to, to, to what a lot of our discussion has been has been um, my lovely wife's paper um, with Sue Pimentel, uh, Text at the Center, which is also on Achieve the Core. Mm -hmm. What made Meredith want to uh, write that, collaborate with Pimentel and, and write that? Uh, exactly what the questions that you've been asking, because people are <laughs> they're teaching isolated standards. Um, that that's that's the reason uh, that they wanted to write that. Well, we thank them for it. Thank you for all these um, fabulous research-based resources that we can use, um, not only to build our own knowledge, but also to you know support districts as they adopt uh, high-quality curricula. And um, as teachers are implementing it, it's so helpful to have these resources. So Carol's work is just really like fundamental and just we're so grateful for it. So thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so is there anything Can I throw else in a quick question, Lori? 
Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to see if, if David was finished with knowledge and vocabulary because he said oh, to remind him. About that. <laughs> go ahead. Um, here's my question. Maybe you do have more, but I'm wondering about, um, you know how in education we're always like, all in on one thing. So when I heard you talking about, um, you know, what's I think primarily important is that students have this background knowledge and vocabulary. Um, I know that there will be people that will say, well, then why do we even have standards at all, right? Like, why do we even need our curriculum to align to standards? It should just all be about this knowledge building and vocabulary. Can you speak to that a little bit of like, you know, why we wouldn't necessarily want to go... <laughs> completely in that direction and just like abandon standards? That's a really good question. Um, I can give you the cynical answer and I can give you the pedagogical answer. You want both? Sure. Of course. Yeah. The, the cynical is states have to make tests. And if they have to make tests, they have to have questions and have to figure out what kind of questions to ask so they need standards. Um, that would be the cynical answer. It's not terribly cynical. <laughs> you know, it is the truth. Um, but the better answer is, or I think, or the more intellectually valid answer is, knowledge and vocabulary are both grown by, um, by reading, much more than any other way. Vocabulary, for example, um, peaks at about a fifth or sixth grade level. Oral vocabulary, what you hear on television or what you... Um, here in, in normal discussion, peaks at about the fifth and sixth grade level. This has actually been studied in that uh, psychologists go in and they create auditory tapes of conversations and offices and academic centers, and then they take, they, they take the transcript and they analyze it for the average vocabulary level, and it's feelings out at about a fifth or sixth grade level. And it, uh, but whereas with text, with written text, written text is just more complex. And that means that if you want to expand your vocabulary beyond fifth or sixth grade, it has to be done by reading. So the best way to grow vocabulary is by reading. And the way to jet propel vocabulary growth is by reading a series of texts on a topic based on the study work that I described and other research. And the best way to grow knowledge is by reading. And it doesn't matter if, this, if it's on a screen or a paper, it's the best way to grow knowledge. So if the best way to grow knowledge and vocabulary is by reading, we want to make sure that kids are reading with depth and with precision. And the standards essentially are nothing more or less than a series of understandings about a text that, maximize, that reflect a deep and wide understanding of a text. So for standard two, it's not just what's the main idea of the text, it's what's the central idea or ideas of the text and how do they unfold as the text progresses. So in other words, the standards are designed to be questions or prompts that dig into a text so the student gets as much out of the text as possible by using those prompts or using those questions. And if the student gets as much out of the text as possible, they will invariably grow their knowledge and grow their vocabulary. So the standards are needed to maximize the probability of students getting a great deal out of, out of the text. Does that, does that help? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. David, I like that. Um, I think about, like, your example was standard two. And as you were talking that through, I was like, yeah, absolutely. You cannot do standard two without standard four, right? You have to know the vocabulary in order to get the central message or the central idea. So they're not in isolation either. They're, they're 
it's, they're going together. Um, and there's usually many of them that are, are grouping together to support what's happening and unpacking in, in the text. Is that accurate? That's, that's, that's absolutely true. Did you ever play, um, Again, this may be, I may, you might not know this because you're not, you're not my age, which is, you know, a few years older than God. Um, but if you, have you ever played a game Cat's Cradle with strings? Yes. So you know what it is where you, and. Vaguely familiar. <laughs> yes. You, know, you create all these knots with a string and you hold it between your two hands. And Richard Dawkins, the evolutionary biologist, said the human genome is like Cat's Cradle. When you, when, whenever you tweak one part of the structure, it, every other part of the structure invariably brought, vibrates. You've affected everything else. And reading is the same way. Um, voc- you know, the difficulty of vocabulary affects your understanding, your, your ability to understand the theme. But on the other hand, if you have more di- relatively more difficult vocabulary, but a relatively simple, straightforward theme, it might help you determine the meaning of some of those words. But if you have a mm-hmm. subtle or multiple themes and difficult vocabulary, they interact to make that text more complex. And then, of course, the structure might be simple or the structure might be straightforward or the point of view might shift throughout the text or the syntax might be simple or the syntax might be more complex. Um, every, every part of text reverberates against every other part of text, exactly as, as you described with vocabulary and, and theme. I feel like that so relates to the question that um, I'm sure Melissa gets this all the time too, but um, you know, teachers and, and leaders alike both always ask, well, what about if students read something either on a test or just generally speaking that isn't about what they've already gained background knowledge on or gained knowledge on? Like, what happens then? They don't have the knowledge and vocabulary. Can you speak to that? Because I think it like directly relates to what you just talked about. It does. Um, when you when you're reading about when you spend six to eight weeks on on immigration, for example, in written wisdom, you're not just learning about immigrants. You're learning a little bit about geography. You're learning a little bit about history. You're learning a little bit about different types of text. You're learning a little bit about different nationalities. Um, and you're learning a little bit about art, art in the case of written wisdom, how art portrays people um, and different different peoples and different people's point of view. You're learning a wide range. And so when you come to a text that may be about Western expansion, um, you might not have studied Western expansion, but you learned a little bit about geography from all your different modules, or you'll learn a little bit about different types of texts, or you'll learn a little bit about different groups of people, or you'll learn a little bit about different pieces of history. I mean, think about any nonfiction book that, that you're reading. Um, it doesn't just teach you about that topic. When you take, take a simple third grade, a relatively straightforward, simple second or third grade book on sharks, that I've seen in a lot of these curriculum, curriculums that, I, that I've worked with, you, you learn a lot about sharks, but you learn about the difference between a fish and a mammal. You learn about different climates. You learn about ocean currents. You learn about people's attitude towards predators. You learn what a predator is. Um, there's all kinds of knowledge that radiates out. And when you're studying different topics over the course of 30 weeks in a year, you learn bits and pieces of all of this. Um, and of course, the more you read, the more the more you learn. And then, when you come to a text on a topic that
that you might not have studied that topic, but little pieces of that topic you will have in your background knowledge that will make it much more likely for you to understand that text. And that's a really good question. It comes up a lot. Yeah. Can I tell a silly story? Sure. Okay. Um, you have to go with me on this one. Melissa's going to laugh really hard. Um, so when I was younger, like, like little, not um, like maybe let's say between eight and 10 and then this continued, but not in the same fashion. Um, I would, I hated to take showers. So I would go into the bathroom and turn the shower on and I would read the time magazines that were sitting on the bathroom floor. <laughs> like, forever to the point where like my dad would be banging on the door like are you finished showering yet and I hadn't even gotten in the shower and I would just consume these time magazines because I was so so taken with the fact that they were things that I had not gotten to read about in school like I was in my school we had basal readers um it was the 80s they that's what you know that's what we had available and that's what we used but I didn't want to read like a fictitious story about two BFFs who were skipping through the park on you know a, a Thursday afternoon and it was insane for me to read these time magazines and to be consuming this content but in hindsight you know, it, it, that complex text that was well, well, well above my comprehension level, but that I, over time, began to comprehend because I had built enough knowledge about it. I had read enough magazines. I had read enough um, about a topic, like different topics that were obviously cyclical. Like, you know, they're constantly reporting on the war or they're constantly reporting on the current events that are happening. Um, the vocabulary became very readily available. And then I could transfer that to what I was reading on my own or what I was reading in school. But it, in hindsight, I felt like, you know, it's such so interesting to look at that experience and, and in hindsight and, and see what an impact it made on even, um, you know, my test taking abilities in school, because nobody knew I was doing that except for me. Um, and so it's just really interesting that you, you say that in like your rationale, David, because it, you know, this little snippet of an experience from my childhood, um, it just like plays in my mind as having a huge impact on lots of other pieces. And I just, I'm not, like, it's so incredible that students now have that opportunity in school to have that experience with complex text versus, you know, basal readers. So just a That's little story exactly. to hit home on that point, but I do shower now uh, regularly without wasting water. So I just want to say that. <laughs> I, I was going to wait and see if um, I'm not if if that question came up, but <laughs> yeah. you know, because you were reading Time magazine, you, you, you essentially it's a it's a it's a current event. It was I don't even know if it still exists. It's a, yeah. it's a current magazine. And so you were, you were in, in essence, you were making tech sets for yourself because yeah. whatever they wrote about China or about inventions or about discoveries, they would follow up on it. And the next mm -hmm. week would have things similar. So in, in much, in, in very much, in very much, you were creating a tech set like in the Cervetti and Wang study uh, with a conceptually coherent set of texts about birds. It wasn't quite as solid uh, as, as, that study, but the, the topics overlap and the topics continue with a news magazine like Time. So you were creating your own your own tech set. Um, yeah. Similar, my my son never chose to read anything on his own. 
until I, I don't know if it was his first year of law school or last year of college where he read Harry Potter. <laughs> but he never chose to read anything on his own. He, he was a good student. He worked on what he had to. But the only thing he chose to read on his own was Mad Magazine and Sports Illustrated. Um, <laughs> but essentially, he read Sports Illustrated religiously for I don't know how many years. So he created a giant text set in the same way yeah. that you created a text set. By reading a series of texts on a topic, you grow tier two vocabulary far more than any other way you can, including, including novels, which tend not to have as much. Um, and I can an example from a third grade lesson that I, that I saw a few years ago. On, they were reading. They were reading series of texts on sea mammals, and they're reading about. I think it was about the dolphin, dolphins, and it says they ascend to the surface, um, and then it says they descend, and, and then it, later on, a few sentences later, they descend. Um, now, in that one page or one and a half pages, you have tier two words: ascend, surface, and descent. But the kids are able to easily figure that out because they've been studying sea mammals and they know that they're mammals that they have to go to the top of the surface in order to breathe, so they could figure out right away what ascend means. And then they know they have to go back down in order to eat and find their food, so they could figure out what descend means. And in between ascending and descending, they were at the surface. So you have three powerful tier two words, ascend, descend, and surface. And isn't that a more pleasurable way to learn vocabulary than anything you can possibly think of? There are fun vocabulary games, and there are great books on vocabulary um, that make it fun and exciting, but that's the best way to learn vocabulary. And that's why a series of texts is so powerful for learning vocabulary. And that's probably why, you know, how you develop the vocabulary, I would say, above and beyond your peers, who were reading from Basil's. Yeah. That's an excellent point. I love that example of um, in context with the, with the text set at that, at that you know, child level to be able to pull out those vocabulary words. I think that I'll, that will hit home with many of our listeners. Melissa, do you have any other questions for David? Well, I think uh, we're probably nearing the end, so I think we'll just wrap up with our last question, which is always, you gave a million pieces of advice already, but if there's <laughs> any last pieces of advice you would give to teachers, leaders, especially those who are um, implementing these new curricula, um, what would that be? Well, for, for teachers implementing these, these new curricula, um, I, I really think as I said earlier, do the curriculum. Spend this. Try not to get diverted to anything else at all. Give yourself the luxury of time to learn this curriculum. It doesn't get learned in a few months. Um, but we, we're seeing evidence that it works. Baltimore had an increase in their scores after one year of implementation. Usually after one year of implementation of any new curriculum, um, scores go down. That didn't happen in Baltimore. The same thing, Detroit which had a lot of obstacles because of everything that went on there, um, had the largest gains in Michigan after one year of implementation of, of EL. Bookworms, wow. which is a um, high-quality material, it, it did not get all green from Ed reports, and I disagree vehemently with that decision. Um, and... However, in two districts, in Delaware and Maryland, that implemented Baltimore, after one year, 
After one year, both those districts had the highest gain, score gain in the state after one year of implementation. Um, and EL has had a national evaluation done by Mathematica, I think, with middle school showing increased gains after two years of implementation of EL at the middle school level. So these high-quality materials are beginning to show results. And there's a learning curve in all of them, but my, my biggest piece of advice is to, is to throw yourself into the curriculum and avoid any other distractions or initiatives. That's great advice. What, would you, what, what advice would you give to leaders? Give your teachers the luxury of time. Uh, I mean, teachers, like in, in, like in any profession, there are weak teachers, strong teachers, and everybody in between. Some teachers will really master this curriculum in a year. Some will need two or three. And if give teachers the luxury of time to learn to learn this curriculum, but also do whatever you can to block any other extraneous initiatives. We can't ask teachers to do 19 different things at once. Teaching is the freaking hardest mm -hmm. thing I've ever done in my life. I was a principal for 10 years. Um, I've been a consultant. Um, there were joys in all of them, but nothing was as demanding as teaching. And I taught for up 20 years, grades 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and uh, mostly those grades. That's Although so occasionally, occasionally I substituted in kindergarten, which was <laughs> beyond the most demanding effort of my life. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> Melissa is a, a secondary teacher at heart, so kindergarten probably yeah. seems like a foreign world. <laughs> I can't no, even I, imagine. I was, <laughs> uh, when, I, when our school that Meredith and I started was small, you could. Um, I taught kindergarten math back to back for two periods, and then did lunch with all our kindergarten classes, and then I got back to my office, and I thought I was going to be an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> this was when I was a young guy running 50 or 60 miles a week and it practically killed me <laughs> well you're still here <laughs> you made it through <laughs> well thank you so much David we can't thank you enough it's been a, a true honor talking with you and um, I'm sure Melissa feels the same way We're just yeah so, we really so appreciate that, that. well yeah, you're very welcome you guys run a fun podcast. I enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Well, have a wonderful rest of your day, and we will talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. All right. All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening, Literacy Lovers. Be sure to visit our website to subscribe to our newsletter and podcast. It's literacypodcast.com. Yep, and don't forget to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Most of them are at Literacy Podcast. Yes, and please, please, please reach out to us. Melissa, what's our email address? Melissa and Lori at LiteracyPodcast.com is our email address. Yes. <laughs> We're so glad you're here to learn with us. Thank you, everybody.